you know. Okay, boys and girls, today we're going to have a lesson about a woman and a child and a great red dragon. Did you say a great red wagon? No, no, it's a great red dragon, Billy. So, boys and girls, keep your hands to yourself, and the teacher's going to bring you through the lesson today. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to, it's a whole lot deeper than, than what it appears to be just an incredible, incredible passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. In fact, th this passage, if we did not have this in the Bible, there are some key things that run all the way from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the rest of the Bible that if you did not have this chapter, you'd be clueless about. You would not be able to identify what the Bible was talking about. And maybe for some of you folks who are newer, let me just mention this this morning. The way that the Bible teaches that we interpret this book is not big by getting some you know, fat-headed preacher up there to tell you what it means. What it says to us is that the Bible must be revealed to us. It must be revealed by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God has a very definite plan that he uses to reveal his word. And that plan is, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, he anoints our eyes, as it were, to be able to see truth that we could never comprehend intellectually. So understand that th this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to use the Word of God to explain the Word of God. Now, let me just kind of walk you back w where we've been over the last several months. We've been working our way through the heart of the book of Revelation. How many of you didn't get a study sheet when you came in? It, 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 get your hand up. Did y'all do that good of a job? Wow, that's incredible. Okay, well, why don't you keep your hand up long enough for these guys to get it. But we've been, we've been working our way through the, the heart of the book of Revelation. From, from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19, what our Lord does for us is he brings us four times through the tribulation period. Now, that's, this is on your review. He brings us from chapter 6 to chapter 19 in the book of Revelation, he brings us four times through the tribulation. Now, now listen, if you miss that, if you miss that that's what's going on in those chapters, like most theologians do, like most commentators do, what, what begins to happen to you as you work through the very heart of this book, I mean, this is, this is what this book is really all about, what begins to happen to you if you miss the fact that you're going four times through the tribulation period in those chapters is you start gumming up all kinds of stuff in this book. You start trying to force interpretations because it doesn't all line up. And you see, the reason that people miss this is they're trying to look at this through an American mindset where we, we think in a line. And so we want everything to line up and it, we want it to unfold in a, in a perfect continuity. And the fact of the matter is, in chapters four or six through nineteen, that's not what happens. God doesn't think like an American. This is an Asian book, and what you find is that God circles through the same event four times. And you see, once you begin to see that that's what's going on here in the heart of the book, man, it is not a difficult thing at all. What you find that God is doing for us here is He's given us four perspectives of the same event and man, I'm talking about a perfect continuity once you begin to see that now to this point we've been through the tribulation period two times two of the four times we came through the first time 
in chapter 6 through the figure of seven seals. Then we came through the second time under the figure of seven trumpets that sound. And now this morning as we begin chapter 12, we begin to make our way through the tribulation period for the third time. And this time as John reveals to us the work and ministry of the Antichrist. And this is of course going to take us all the way to chapter 12. The work and ministry of the Antichrist is the third time. And then he'll take us through one final time, that fourth time, under the figure of seven vials. And of course we'll get to there in the next several months or so. So today we begin with, with chapter 12 and we begin the third journey through the tribulation period. Now you remember when we began chapter 11, I, I told you that Revelation chapter 11 is the most important chapter, not only in the book of Revelation, but really in the entire Bible. Now when we come to chapter 12 this morning, we come to the great chapter in the book of Revelation. Not the greatest chapter, but the great chapter. And it's great not because I think it's great, but because of the things that the chapter actually identifies as great. There are four great things that we're going to see in this chapter. In verse 1, we're going to see a great wonder. Then in verses 3 and 9, we're going to see a great dragon. And then in verse 12, we're going to see a great wrath. And then in verse 14, a great eagle. And so you know how this chapter breaks down, so you can get a little preview of where we're going. Our outline in, in chapter 12 that will take us over the next several weeks is, first of all, in verses 1 through 6, we're going to see a great wonder in heaven, a great wonder in heaven. And then in verses 7 to 17, we're going to see a great war in heaven. And both of those, both the great wonder in heaven and the great war in heaven, as we're going to see, have incredible implications down here on the earth. All right, let's, let's get started into it. Looking at Roman numeral one on your outline, a great wonder in heaven. Now, if you're going to make any sense whatsoever out of what's going on in, in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to have to begin by first identifying the characters. Identifying the characters. As we already mentioned in the title, the main characters in this chapter are a woman, a child, and a great red dragon. But let's look for them as we begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 12. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And now, Lord, we do recognize how desperately we need you every time that we come to this book. As we've already talked about, we, we 
understand that this book must be revealed to us. We come through and read a passage like that. We, we know our finite human minds cannot approach this truth. You've got to take your word this morning and explain it to us. And so, Lord, I pray you would make it just abundantly clear to all of us. Help us to, to learn what your word is saying to us in this incredible chapter. And Lord, for those that are here this morning that don't know you as their Savior, we want to just stop for a minute. And, and as a church family, we want to come together and ask you to do in the hearts of people that are in this room today that don't know you the same thing that you did in our hearts that day when our eyes opened to the reality of who you are and who we are and what you came to this planet to provide for us. May this be the day you work the miracle of salvation in the hearts of many people in this room today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's see if we can identify the characters this morning. We're going to look first at the identity of the woman. That's number one on your outline, the woman. Now, there, there's several times that the book of Revelation refers to a, a woman. Back in chapter 2, in verse 20, why don't you just cruise back there real quick. In, in writing to the church in the Thyatira church period, our Lord says, chapter 2, verse 20, He says, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And as we came through this section, we saw that our Lord is referring here to a, a counterfeit system of religion that actually began during the Pergamus church period in the 4th century. And this, this religious system that he's referring to here was prevalent all the way through the Dark Ages in, in the Smyrna and Thyatira church periods. And we saw that he calls that system... Jezebel, he calls it by a particular name so that we do something. So that we compare Scripture with Scripture, just like he tells us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He calls it Jezebel so that we'd go back into the Old Testament and find out what were the characteristics of that Jezebel system of religion that we find back there. And do you remember what we found as we did that? We found that this woman Jezebel is representative of a false system that coincidentally enough uses black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. And in the fourth century, that same Jezebel system that was working way back there in the Old Testament, what God's letting us know here, is in the fourth century, here it comes again. It's that same false system of Jezebel. It's that same woman, the woman Jezebel. He, so he says in the 4th century, look for the appearance of a false religious system that's going to come out of the ground almost that uses black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. Then in chapter 17... We find that there's another woman that's found in this book, Revelation 17. And you see her in the, the middle of verse 3. 
She's sitting on the beast. John says, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And that beast, of course, is the what? Y'all, y'all nervous today for some reason. That, that beast is, is who? The Antichrist. Y'all, y'all know this. Verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And what we've already seen as we've studied this together, and obviously we're going to see it in more detail when we actually get to chapter 17, is that this woman that we see here in Revelation chapter 17 is the same woman Jezebel that we saw back in chapter 2. It's just this is the form that she is going to take during the tribulation period. In fact, go back to chapter 2 for just a a quick second. The Lord even said back here in chapter 2, look in verse 22, speaking of that woman Jezebel, it says, Behold, verse 22, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into what? Great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. So we've got that woman Jezebel here in chapter 2, that woman sitting on the beast, the great whore, the mother of harlots in chapter 17. And then we've got the woman that we find in chapter 12. Now there's going to be some that would argue that there's another woman that is found in chapter 21 and verse 9. Folks want to try to tell us that there's a woman over here who is the Lamb's wife. But now listen, if you check out the verse, and you can go ahead and and, and do that, chapter 21 and verse 9, if you check out the verse, what you find is that the Lamb's wife is obviously a female, but God is very careful not to refer to her as a woman. Now now listen real carefully to this. This is not just a matter of semantics. You've got to understand something about how God thinks God does not refer to her as a woman because God has very select very carefully selected every single word in this book and again it goes back to that principle we were just talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 you see God designed this book that we're holding in our hands to be a self-interpreting book this book is its own commentary it's its own lexicon it's its own dictionary And he didn't refer to the Lamb's wife here in chapter 21 as a woman because he doesn't want us, as we compare things spiritual with things spiritual, messing up his truth. So she's a female, but she's not referred to as a woman. And again, that's not just straining at a gnat, and you'll see that in just a few minutes. But who is this woman in chapter 12? Well, the Catholics say to us that this woman, of course, is the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary. This is what the Catholics say. In fact, somewhere along the way, you've probably seen, uh, look on the left-hand side of your study sheet there, you see that drawing that we put there. The Catholics, and this is taken out of 
Uh, I mean, you, you probably have seen this. Those of you that were former Catholics, you've probably seen this in some of the literature, stained glass windows and all of that, that kind of thing. And, and this is the woman that they're depicting here in Revelation chapter 12 as the Virgin Mary. And, and you can see there in verse 1 that she is a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And of course, they refer to her as the queen of heaven, and they cite verse 1 as their, their proof text. And of course, the reason that they say that the woman is Mary is because you see in verse 2, the woman in this passage is pregnant, and verse 5, and she brought forth a man or a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and obviously that's the Lord Jesus Christ and of course the pregnant woman who gave birth to him was who it was Mary so the woman must be Mary now if all we had in chapter 12 were those few verses then we might be able to come to that conclusion but as you can see those aren't the only verses that we have in this chapter and whoever this woman is our interpretation of who she is is going to have to be consistent with all of the verses, right? And Mary fits in verse 2. Mary fits in verse 5. But that's it. Look at verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Has that ever happened to Mary? Or will that ever happen to Mary in prophecy? Absolutely not. Drop down to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Was Mary ever persecuted like that? No. Verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness and to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And again, did that ever happen to Mary? Or is that any way, shape, or form something that's prophesied of her in the future? No. So we know this. Whoever she is, she's not Mary. Okay? And before someone thinks that I'm trying to, you know, take a pot shot at the Catholics because they think it's the Virgin Mary and, you know, they would think that's an outlandish interpretation, let's move next to the, who the Protestants and most Baptists say she is because their interpretation, quite honestly, is even more outlandish than the Catholics. Protestants and most Baptists, and, and if, you're, if you're newer to our fellowship, the reason I'm breaking Baptist out as something distinct from Protestants is because they are. And you can go back in history and you can find that a Protestant is somebody who was a part of the Roman Catholic system that was protesting that system. Our heritage is not a group of people that were ever identified in any way, shape, or form to that system. They were never in the system, never a part of that thing. They've always protested it, but not from within. And so that's the reason we make that, that distinction. But, but Protestants and most Baptists say that the woman in chapter 12 is the church. And you see, this is why I was making such a big to-do just a minute ago about how carefully God is in selecting the words that he uses. Because all the way through the New Testament, folks, the church is referred to in the feminine gender. And, and so that we, we never in a million years get confused that the woman in chapter 12 is the church, God never 
ever, ever refers to the church using the term woman. She's referred to as a wife in Ephesians chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 21. She's referred to as a virgin in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. She's referred to as a bride in Revelation chapter 21, but she's never referred to as a woman. And again, you can start plugging in church in Revelation chapter 12, every place that it talks about the woman. And listen, there's not a way in the world that you can make that fit. In verse 2, the church didn't bring forth Christ. In fact, the opposite is true, right? Christ brought forth the, the, the church. In, in verse 6, the church at no time flees to the wilderness, has a place that's prepared of God where she's fed for 1,260 days. In verse 14, the church has never been transported to the wilderness on the wings of an eagle, nor is that ever going to take place. In verse 17, though the church has the testimony of Jesus Christ, watch this now, the commandments of God is a phrase that is connected to the law and is never ever used in connection with the church and we'll see that in more detail when we get to verse 17 in the next week or so but again you remember what we've learned together as a, as a church family as we've learned the principles of Bible study one of the key principles of Bible study is the individual word factor the fact that God chooses the exact words that he wants for a specific purpose and you see God made sure that he didn't use that word woman so there wouldn't be anybody here that would ever think that the church was this woman here in Revelation chapter 12 so the Catholics say the woman is Mary the Protestants and most Baptists say she's the church the big question of course for this group of people is what does the Bible say okay well let's just go with what it says whoever she is we know this already from what we've seen in chapter 12 number one what we've seen is she has to bring forth Christ that's in verses 2 and 5 number two she has to be persecuted by the devil number three she has to flee to the wilderness. Number four, she has to fly there on the wings of an eagle. Am I going too fast? And number five, she has to be fed there 1,260 days or three and a half years. So those five things are going to have to be consistent with whoever we find that this woman actually is and the only one that fits the description across the board is who? Israel. Well, y'all don't need me, see? Go ahead. I'm, I'm out of here. All right. And we'll see that, and for those of you that didn't already know that, as we work our way through chapter 12, how all five of those things are true of the nation of Israel. But for now, look back at, at verse 1. John says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven now all the way through our study of the book of Revelation what we've done is we've taken a very literal literal approach the only time that we have ever symbolized anything in this entire study I mean we've gone all the way through 11 chapters the only time that we've ever symbolized anything is if the passage clearly 
identified that it was symbolism. All the rest of the way, whatever it said, we just took it for face value. We took the literal approach, and that's the way that God wants us to do that. But right from the get-go, here in chapter 12, John's letting us know that this woman is a great wonder. That is, in the revelation of her, he is seeing a woman in heaven, but she is a symbolic representation of something. And as we'll see, a symbolic representation of of something on the earth. And as we, we see the description of her, as John goes on in, in verse 1, it becomes even more apparent that he's dealing with, with symbolism here because he says that the woman is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And obviously there's no literal woman that is arrayed uh, like that. Okay, so here we got, we've got this woman who's clothed with the, the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, how in the world are we supposed to figure out what that means? Okay, and a lot of churches, here's the deal, well, you know, I'm the pastor, and, and so I say this is what it means, and, and in other churches it's, well, you know, this is a difficult passage, and, you know, Dr. So-and-so says that this means, or Bible scholars tell us that this, this means this. You know what, it comes down to, who cares what the pastor says? Who cares what Dr. So-and-so says? Who cares what the theologians say or what they tell us it means? Again, God tells us how this book is revealed, and it's by comparing Scripture with Scripture, so let's do it. And if we're going to compare things spiritual with things spiritual in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1, with namely the, this thing of the, the sun and the moon, in the stars, it's going to take us right back to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. So let's go back there. Genesis 37. And in chapter 37, Joseph's going to have a dream here. And I want you to check out the things he sees in this dream. Genesis 37, let's pick up in verse 9. And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, now watch this now, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? And, and now, now watch this now. He's going to let you know the interpretation of the dream. Jacob, or, or Israel, the father here, he understood as soon as Joseph dreamed the dream, and he starts telling him what he dreamed, he understood, and he understood what he meant, and he rebukes him because of it. Okay, here's the interpretation. Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow ourselves to thee, to the earth? And so what we find here is that the son in Joseph's dream stood for the father, or Israel, Jacob. The moon stood for the mother, or Rachel. And the eleven stars stood for the eleven brothers. You say, yeah, but you know, back in, in chapter 12 of Revelation, it, it said that there were twelve stars. Who's the twelfth brother here? Joseph, right? There, there's 12. And the, those 12 sons of Jacob, Israel, and Rachel, 
the moon. Those 12 sons are the 12, what? 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we find that the Bible tells us that the woman in Revelation chapter 12, who is connected with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars, is none other than Israel. Now, now go back to Revelation chapter 12. And let's look further at the identity of this woman in verse 2. Verse 2 says, And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. But what he's saying here is that it was a long, travailing, painful process for the Lord Jesus Christ to be delivered into this world. And what this verse does is it takes you all the way back into Genesis chapter 3, where after Adam and Eve sinned, you remember what, what happened there in Genesis chapter 3? Eve took of the fruit, she gave to her husband, and he did eat. And so God goes looking for him, and he pulls everybody together, all, all the people in the story, and he says, okay, now Adam, because of your part in this thing, here's what's going to happen to you. And, and Eve, because of your part in this thing, here's what's going to happen to you. And then he turns to Satan right there in the garden, and what he does is he gives the first promise and the first great prophecy of the Word of God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God tells Satan that the seed of the woman would end up crushing his head. That is Satan's head. And now listen, God made that clear to him. He says, Satan, because you did this, let me just tell you what's going to shake down. The seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Okay, now listen. Satan is no dummy, buddy. He understands, and listen, from that moment on, Satan does everything within his power to keep that from happening. You following that? I mean, that's not real tough, but it's easy to miss. Okay? And what you find is that because he was going to come against that thing, it was a long, travailing, and painful process for the Lord Jesus Christ to actually come and be born on this planet. I mean, in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, what you find is that Satan tried to stop the seed. How did he do it, guys? Through Cain's murder of Abel. And if you think that that's just me speculating, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 tells you that Cain was of that, do you know what it says? Was of that wicked one. He, you know what he was doing there in that garden? Here it is in chapter 3, and Satan says, or God says, the seed of the woman is going to crush your stinking head. So all of a sudden, they start having kids. <sighs> Cain, who was of that wicked one, slew his righteous brother, Abel. Abel. And then you go to Genesis chapter 6, and most of you know what's shaken down in Genesis chapter 6. What happens there is fallen angels are cohabitating with human women. Now, I wonder why that's going on. You can figure it out now, can't you? Satan's doing what? He's trying to corrupt that seed. 
But not only does the Bible say that that one who would crush Satan's head, not only was, was he called the seed of the woman, he's also called by something else. And Satan didn't miss this either, guys. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16, this one who would crush Satan's head is also called the seed of of Abraham and again don't think for a minute that God did or that Satan didn't get the drift when God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 that in thee that is Abraham that is in his seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed and again please don't think that Satan missed that Abraham is the father of the what nation of Israel and Satan figured out that the seed of the woman who would ultimately be his downfall would also come through the seed of Abraham. And that's why when God was forging Abraham's seed into a nation when they were in bondage in Egypt, you remember what, what Satan did? He raised up Pharaoh to try to wipe out every baby born that, that was born of an Israelitish woman. Do you remember that? Through all the land of Egypt, every baby boy is killed. Why is that happening? It's happening because somebody's coming against the seed. But not only is the one who would crush Satan's head called the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham, but he's also called in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3 and some other places are listed on your study sheet there, John 7, 42, 2 Timothy 2, 8. He's also called the seed of of David and of course David was God's chosen king over the nation of Israel and, and do you remember David's got some problems doesn't he he's got woman problems you know why he's got women problems because somebody's coming against that seed and not to mention that he had some problems but his son had some major problems. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You see, there was a battle against that seed. But now check it out. 4,000 years after God made that prophecy and that promise back in Eden, and he got in Satan's face and he said, there's one coming that is going to crush your head. 4,000 years later, the nation of Israel brought forth that child. Now, obviously, Mary is the person whose womb she, that he actually came forth from. But the scripture is very clear that the nation of Israel is the one who brought forth that child. Not just through the verses that we just looked at, but I want you to go over to Romans chapter 9. And I want you to see this. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 4, Paul begins to, to recount all the ways that God had used the Israelites. And he says in verse 4 that it is the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers, and watch this now, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. In other words, 
He was brought forth by whom? By Israel, right? And you see, that's why, just what we saw over here in Revelation, go back to chapter 12 now. That's exactly what Revelation chapter 12 and verse 2 is saying. The woman, Israel, brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ, and now hopefully you can understand it a little better, through a lot of tears, through a lot of travail, through a lot of torment. So, that's the identity of the first main character, the woman. And she is, without a doubt, Israel. And again, we'll see that further substantiated as we make our way through the rest of this chapter. But now let's look at the identity of the second main character, the great red dragon. And that's number two on your sheet. The great red dragon. And verse three says, look at it. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And he, obviously he gives us a, a, an incredible description right there. But lest anybody has any doubts whatsoever about who he is, look, look at verse 9. Verse 9 just flat out tells you. And the great dragon was cast out. Here he is, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. So the dragon in verses 3 and 4 is Satan or the devil. And now look in verse 3 and let's notice first of all in the description of him in verse 3, just very simply the fact that he was red. He is red. Now red in the Bible, folks, is always, always, always a symbol for what? Blood. Y'all are, you guys are in the ozone or something today, aren't you, man? Talk to me for crying. I'm talking to you. And if, if you don't talk back, I'm going to just go on and on and on. I'm going to probably do that anyway, right? So y'all say, well, go for it, man. Red in the Bible is always a symbol for blood. And what you find in the Bible is that the devil is the motivating force behind the bloodshed in man's history. He's the motivating force behind the bloodshed in man's history. We've already seen, we just mentioned this a minute ago, that Cain, who was the first one to shed the blood of another human being in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, identifies him of, as of that wicked one. Jesus said of Satan in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that he was a murderer from the beginning. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that like a roaring lion, our adversary, the devil, walketh about seeking whom he may, what? Devour. And what you've got there in 1 Peter 5, 8, folks, is a picture of a lion that has got blood all over his mouth trying to... To, to take its prey and pull it to pieces and he's devouring it. So, so first of all, he's red. Secondly, he's referred to as a dragon. A dragon. Now, if you've been here for our, our study of, of this book, on numerous occasions, we've, we've gone back into Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, and we've seen that originally... Satan wasn't Satan or the devil at all, but originally he was Lucifer. Uh, 
He was Lucifer, the anointed cherub that covered. He was the covering cherub that was closest to the throne of God. The name Lucifer means light bearer. And as the anointed cherub that was closest to the throne of God, he bore the light of God and passed through this incredible being, which according to Ezekiel chapter 28, Lucifer was made up of incredible, beautiful jewels. And the light of God would pass through this anointed cherub and it would just absolutely flood the universe with the blazing blinding glorious light of God penetrating through the light bearer into every color of the rainbow and as he was bearing the light of God it also says there in Ezekiel 28 that he's made up of musical instruments and he would lead beings the angelic beings to worship God now listen folks never never has there been a more beautiful a more powerful, more high-ranking being in all of God's creation than Lucifer was. And then according to Ezekiel 28 and verse 17, in fact, it was just that very thing, his beauty and his power that caused him to be lifted up. You see, the only one with more power and more beauty and more high rank than Lucifer was God. And there came a point, according to Ezekiel 28 and verse 17, and Isaiah chapter 14, what it says is that's the very place and position that Lucifer wanted. And in his pride, he is lifted up seeking to make himself God, and as a result of that, God transformed him, changed him, and he lost his name. He's no longer Lucifer. He's that old serpent called the devil and Satan. He lost his throne on the earth, though he's still the God of this world. And he, he lost his ability to lead the sons of God, to worship God. He lost that ability, but man, he has got the same incredible power that he had back then. But now he's no longer the anointed cherub that's called Lucifer. What we find out in this passage is that he became... A red dragon called the serpent, the devil, and Satan. And notice something else in verse 3. This dragon has seven heads. And if you really want to find out something major about Satan in his present condition as a dragon that has seven heads... The place to go in your Bible is Job chapter 41. In fact, let's, let's do that. If you want to find out, folks, what Satan is really like. Now, you'll never see him like this, but God is letting you know in Job chapter 41 how he sees him since he's no longer Lucifer, now that he is a seven-headed, fire-breathing dragon. Job chapter 41, and oh my goodness, I, I hope we can cruise through this. Uh, how many of you were not here when we made our way through the entirety of, of church history? In fact, this would have been way at the beginning of church history. How many of you were not here during that period of time? Okay, uh, a good, good portion of, of you folks, and you folks that were here, you will agree with me that this is significant enough for us to spend just a little bit of time on? 
All right, let's, let's do it. Be a little refresher for some of you guys. Uh, go to, to Psalm, uh, uh, Job 41. I'm cruising through the Psalms and reading that. Job 41. And what we find in Job chapter 41 is we find this, this being that is called Leviathan. Leviathan. Now, this is, this is a tough one, okay? Because how many of you, w- without having already studied this, would know what Leviathan is? workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth using the principles that god gave us for bible study we take shortcuts and in my bible and most of you probably have this same kind of thing happen in yours verse 40 or verse 1 of chapter 41 begins canst thou draw out leviathan and you see mine's got a little number next to leviathan how many of you got a number by Leviathan there to help you. Okay, now some of you that may be newer, uh, a lot of us have Bibles that the, the publisher has put some, some notes and some cross-references in to, to try to help us. And a lot of times they, they, believe it or not, can even be helpful sometimes. But this is footnoted, okay? It, it's got a number eight next to mine. And I go over to number eight in my center column references. And my Bible says that a leviathan is either a whale or it's a whirlpool. Okay, so now which is it? Is it a whale or or is it a a whirlpool? Because you know what? The two of of them aren't anything alike. Okay, so, man, I'm glad I've got the Bible scholars to help us to understand what this is. And and you see, and we've already been through this. I won't drag it out, though I would love to right now. But a lot of you, you, you've got, what else do you have there in yours? Talk to me. Hippopotamus? Crocodile? Anybody got elephant? Really, some of them have elephant. A large sea creature? Okay, we're helped, aren't we? I mean, we got it down now. It's either a whale, whirlpool, a large sea creature, an elephant, a hippopotamus, or an unknown flying object, right? Okay, so, you know, how in the world are we ever going to figure out what this Leviathan dude is, you know? Well, I guess we'll never know because, you know, scholars can't agree on what it means. I've been, I've been trying to hammer this all morning long. How do we figure out what this book says? By comparing what? Scripture with Scripture. And so here we are, we're at Leviathan, and it, we don't know for sure what, what he is. So let's just begin to go through the Word of God, doing what God tells us to do to understand what it is. And what it does is it takes us over to Psalm 74. So just go over to the right just a little bit. Psalm 74 and verse 14. And watch what it says. Thou breakest the heads of... Oh, here it is again. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces and okay now I, I may not understand who leviathan is just yet but i've just figured out something pretty major here haven't i i've found out that he's got more than one okay just line it up man he's got more than more than one head now let's go over to the book of isaiah go over to the right just a little bit further now book of isaiah chapter 27 
Isaiah 27. In that day, in that day, and for those of you that have been here for several years now, you, you understand that is a phrase that God used biblically to set the context for us as the second coming of Christ. That's his day. The day set aside in, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, the day of the Lord. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword, which is what, y'all? Word of God shall punish, here it is, Leviathan. Now watch this. The piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. And so let's just begin to pull together the components here. We don't know who Leviathan is. He's either a whale, a whirlpool, a hippopotamus, an elephant, or some large sea creature or some kind of a deal like that. But what God tells us is that he is a serpent that is known as a dragon that has more than one head. Hello? Anybody home? I mean, you know what? You don't have to be a theologian to figure that out, do you? Because Revelation chapter 12 tells you exactly we're talking about this dragon who's got more than one head, who's called a serpent. His name is Satan. It's the devil. And check it out, guys. We don't have the time this morning to go to the book of Job in verse 41. But you know what? After you do that little gig right there, you just cross-reference, you find out who that is, you go back into that chapter, and you know what you find? You've got the greatest chapter in the Bible showing you the person and work of the devil. And you know what? 99.9% .9 of the people on this planet this morning don't even have a clue that it's there. And it's the greatest account in the entire Bible. If you want to know how he operates, sitting right back there in Job chapter 41. And you know what it says in that chapter? You can check it out later. It says, who is it that will open the doors of his face and discover the faces of his garment? You know what it says? Satan, you've got to watch him because all down through history, you know what he does? He puts doors over his face. He wears different masks to appear to be different things, and he puts on different clothes at different times to blend, blend into the scenery of history so that you can't see where he is. And God's saying, now who is it that's going to be able to open the doors of his face? and see behind the faces of his garment. Be able to find him in history. And listen, forget about finding him in history, man. We can't even find him in the Bible. We don't even know that he's hiding back there in, in Job chapter 41, much less that he's presently working right now in 1998 all around us every single day. Most of Christianity doesn't have a clue where he is. They think he's in the bar, in the houses of prostitution, in the breweries of this country. Guys, he ain't anywhere close. He's wearing religious clothes right now. Those are the faces of his garments. And buddy, you better be able to identify him. All right, now let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. 
Notice something else that Revelation 12.3 says about this red dragon who has seven heads. And that is that those seven heads have seven crowns upon them. And folks, listen, we could make this a series in itself. We're going to just jet through this so that you can get this down and you can study this somewhere along the way. But it is very, very important that you understand what it's talking about here is that those seven heads have seven crowns uh, upon them. And what you find out is that the Bible lays out all the kingdoms from the beginning of history to the end of history under the picture of seven crowns or seven kings. Now, and listen now. By these kings or by these, these kingdoms, Satan, who is the god of this world, has controlled and is controlling the earth through these seven crowns. Okay? Now, uh, again, obviously we don't have time to, to go into detail on all of this, but, but I want to give them to you so you at least know who they are. I'll give you the references in case you want to study this out on your, your own. The first one is Nimrod. Nimrod, the king of Babylon. And you find him in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. And he ruled the world about 2400 B.C. The second crowned head by which Satan has ruled the world is Pharaoh. P-H-A-R-A-O-H. P-H-A-R-A-O-H. And he is the king of Egypt. You find him in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2. And you may want to jot this reference down as well. Ezekiel 29 and verse 3. Exodus 5 verse 2. Ezekiel 29 and verse 3. And would you just listen right now to what Ezekiel 29 3 says? It says, Behold, I am against... The, uh, I am against the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon. Okay? God just lets you know Satan has ruled the world. He's the god of this world, but he's only done it through seven kings. Okay? So we've seen Nimrod. Then we see Pharaoh. The third crowned head of the dragon, or Leviathan, is a man by the name of Sennacherib. I help you. S-E-N-N-A-C-H-E-R-I-B. S-E-N-N-A-C-H-E-R-I-B. Sennacherib. The king of Assyria. The king of Assyria. And he's found in 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 13. 2 Kings 18, verse 13. And he rules until approximately 606 B.C. And then the, the next four, all the next four found in the book of Daniel, in the, in, the, in the vision of the great image in Daniel chapter 2, the fourth head is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, N-E-B-U-C-H-A-D. N-E-Z-Z-A-R. I'll give it to you again. N-E-B-U-C-H-A-D-N-E-Z-Z-A-R. Of course, he's the king of 
Babylon. You find him in Daniel chapter 3. And you might want to also include Jeremiah 51.34. Jeremiah 51.34, where it specifically refers to Nebuchadnezzar as a dragon. And that kingdom runs from approximately 606 B.C. to 536 B.C. 606 B.C. to 536 B.C. Then the fifth king takes over. Darius, D-A-R-I-U-S, Darius. He's the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, the Media-Persian Empire. And he's listed in Daniel chapter 5, verse 31. Daniel 5, 31, and that kingdom runs from approximately 536 B.C. to about 330 B.C. 536 to 330 B.C. Then the sixth crowned head by which Satan rules the world. And he's not specifically named in Scripture, but through the prophecy there is just absolutely no doubt in anybody's mind who he is. He is Alexander the Great, the King of Greece. Alexander the Great, the King of Greece. And this kingdom is found in several places in the, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 20. Daniel 10, verse 20. Daniel 11, verse 2. And Daniel 8, 21, where Alexander the Great there is referred to as the rough goat. He's not specifically named as Alexander the Great. He's referred to in the book of Daniel as the rough goat. But when you begin to see the prophecy, it's obvious who he is. And that Grecian empire extends from approximately 330 B.C. to 100 B.C. 330 B.C. to 100 B.C. And then the seventh head by which Satan ran the world is the kingdom of... Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus, August, and then U.S. Caesar Augustus, and he is the king of Rome. And of course, this would have been the, the, the world power that would have been running the world at the time of the Lord's first coming. And you find it in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 71, and Luke chapter 2, and verse 1, and that kingdom ran from approximately 100 B.C. to 346 A.D. 100 B.C. to 346 A.D. Now I want you to listen very, very carefully to this. Now that's the last head of Satan. Okay, that's the last head. Okay, here it is now. And at that point... 346 A.D., Rome, the seventh head of Satan, went into a mystery form that is called in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 5, mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And now listen, you're, you're changing your sheep, but now keep your train of thought. In that mystery form, what Rome did is Rome switched from being a military power to control the world politically into a mystery 
religious form to control the world politically. Now, now did you catch that? What's the ultimate goal? Run the world politically. We want to run the world politically. And so what Rome found, okay, and, and guess, who are these seven heads representative of, guys? Satan. He runs the world through these seven heads. There's only been seven. There will only be seven. But what happened is that seventh head, Rome, went into a mystery form. And now, you see, during that period of time, way back under Caesar Augustus, Rome ran the world politically because it was a military power. What you find happens after that period of time is Rome still runs the world politically. It just no longer does it through a military power. Now what it does is it does it through a religious power. And that's why to this day, folks, listen, the Roman church is also called Vatican State. It's not my terminology. It's called Vatican State. You know why it's called Vatican State? Because it's a political entity. And that's why in Revelation chapter 17, why don't you cruise over there. Look at the last verse in this chapter. It says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city, watch it, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. This is what we were talking about with Leviathan earlier, guys. You see, you've got to watch him as he comes down through history because he's, he's incredible. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's got to do in order to run the world. And so what he does is in 346 A.D., he just transforms himself into an angel of light, whereas before, he was the dominant iron fist of Rome, the military power, and now all of a sudden, you find the Roman church come up, and the Roman church identified here in Revelation chapter 17 is that woman which dominates over the kings of the earth. And you can check it out through history, folks. Vatican State, the Pope, is the one that actually did the running of the governments of the world. And the kings of this world would come and bow and kiss the ring of the Pope. The kings of the world bowing to the religious leader of Rome. So there have been seven heads with seven crowns. And as I said just a minute ago, there will never be any more than that. And the Antichrist, listen, the Antichrist will simply pick up as a 21st century Caesar Augustus to run the world. And it's going to happen in just a few years. It's going to be the same exact thing that it was back there in 346. It's just the Antichrist is going to come out into the same form that he was back then. It's the seventh head. So it's a red dragon with seven heads. And on those heads are seven crowns. And verse 3 of Revelation 12 also adds that he has ten horns. And you can rest. We're only going to identify the dragon here, okay? So we're almost done. Okay, now we're going to be going into detail 
on these ten horns when we get to chapter 13, next chapter in, in, in verse 1, because you can look across the page there, look in chapter 13, verse 1, and you can see that these ten horns show up there. And what we're going to find, listen, what we're going to find is that that seventh and final kingdom that we just saw, that Satan's going to use to run the world, that seventh and final kingdom will be used by Satan to rule the world under the Antichrist. And what that kingdom is going to be, uh, is going to have, is going to have ten horns, okay? And that will be the ten-nation confederacy over which the Antichrist will rule during the tribulation period. So get it. That seventh head is the Antichrist. He comes, and as the king of Rome the Caesar Augustus to rule the world but as he's ruling the world he's got ten horns and those ten horns are the ten nation confederacy and interestingly enough ten in the Bible is the number of the Gentiles it's the the number of completeness as far as this evil world is concerned seven of course is the number of completion as far as God is concerned Ten is the number of completeness as far as the Gentiles are concerned. The Gentiles come from Noah, who just happens to be the tenth from Adam. The Gentile nations are separated in Genesis chapter 10. In Daniel's vision, the image has ten toes, which again represent the ten Gentile nations, and specifically the ten nation confederacy over which Satan will rule through the Antichrist during the tribulation period. So he has ten horns. Ten horns. And notice next that in the middle of verse 4 of chapter 12, the middle of verse 4 lets us know that he hates the child. He hates the child. In the middle of verse 4 says, And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And of course we know that that's characteristic of Satan according to 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. It says that he as our adversary, the devil, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I mentioned just a minute ago in Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 34, we were talking about the kings over which Satan had operated and to, to rule the world. And Jeremiah 51 verse 34 says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, hath devoured me. He hath swallowed me up like a dragon. And verse 4 right here in Revelation chapter 12 says that that's exactly the power that the devil tried to exercise upon the child that was delivered of the woman. He hates that child. And of course, I think it's obvious to you who the child is. And we'll, we'll, we'll finish that next week. But listen. Okay, ju just look at me. Don't, don't pack up. Just look. He hates that, that child. That child is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the seed of the woman. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the seed of David. He's the one that's going to crush Satan's head at the second coming. And he knows it's coming. The devil knows it's coming. And he hates it. And you know what he hates? He hates when people on this planet 
come into a relationship with God, the only way that God has established that we can have a relationship with Him. You know how that is? It's through that child. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why He's so against Him? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is building a kingdom out of people who will come and receive Him as their personal Savior. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, listen, I understand that the ground we covered today, wow, this is some, some heavy, heavy stuff that you got in for. But you know what we found around here? That when God's Word is going for, God does incredible things with His book. And all of us were sitting in a service like this one day, and somebody was up there using the Word of God. And the Bible says that that is the incorruptible seed that God uses to cause us to be born again spiritually. And if you're here this morning, and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I, I want you to understand, there is a battle that is going on above your head right now that if you could see it would literally freak you out and it's a battle between a seven-headed dragon and one who came to this planet born in Bethlehem but that one sits on a throne today at the right hand of God the Father and there's a battle that's going on a battle for you and the Lord Jesus Christ today desperately wants you to come into his family and Satan the seven-headed fire-breathing dragon is on the other side trying to do everything he can to divert your attention away from what Jesus Christ is wanting to do in your life and today the Lord Jesus Christ can come into your life and cause your dead spirit which died because of your sinfulness he can bring it to life you can enter a relationship with God today that will cause when you take your last breath or when the rapture takes place and believers are removed from this planet, it can cause you to enter into an eternal relationship with the God of this universe. And He wants you to come to Him today. Our service is going to be concluded here in just a second. Our pastors are going to be on, on either exit right up here at the front. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, for God's sake, for your sake, would you come? We're living in the last days, folks. All of these things we're talking about are things that are going to be taking place here in the not-too-distant future, future based on everything that the Bible prophesies concerning the, the time that we're living in. And so if God is speaking to you today, Will you come? Will you respond to him? I know you probably got. You probably came with somebody. That's cool. They'll wait on you. Just, just come up. If you feel uncomfortable talking to them, talk to whoever brought you. But if, if you came today and you're all by yourself or you're just with your family and God's been speaking to your heart, showing you the reality of all of how his word comes together, if you have questions, then come this morning and respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would take these words and I pray that you would cause people who are in this room that are outside of a relationship with you, I pray that today would be the day of, of their salvation.
I pray that today there would be people who came in here lost and on their way to hell. I, I pray that there would, would be people today that have heard you speaking to them. And I pray that before they leave this room, that they would call upon your name and they'd be saved today. I pray that this would put an urgency in all of us to recognize the battle that is going on for the souls of men around us every day and for the kingdom that you're wanting to establish on this earth, the glory that you're wanting to receive. And may we as believers purify our lives in light of these truths that we've seen together today. In Jesus' name, amen. And just before uh, we're dismissed today, there's one item of business.